Who knew Fleetwood Mac segued so well into our intro? <laughs> This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And is there anything that strikes grief in all of our hearts more than the misery, anguish, agony, pain, and distress caused by sexual violence? Society seems to have a special hatred for those who commit sexual abuse and violence, especially rape. The deeper desire for vengeance, the demand for the cruelest of punishments, rape, and the way we respond to it certainly gives the impression that it is the most serious and exceptional of all crimes. Understanding rape in this way, I mean, it makes sense that if a nation's leaders, if its government was engaging in systemic rape of their people, those leaders in that government should be targeted with reprisal from the outside world. And harsh reprisal. Not doing so could easily be misconstrued as somehow endorsing sexual violence, rape, and a rape state, if you will. Now, that's exactly what people like former Facebook and Meta COO Sheryl uh, Sandberg, as well as Hillary Clinton, are saying and doing when it comes to Hamas, Israel, and the war in Gaza. The claim that's being made without any evidence, as so many claims have been made about the ongoing war, is that Hamas is an organized rapist regime. Therefore, from Israel's view and that of their supporters in government, the private sector, and media, if you are for a ceasefire, if you support an end to the ongoing war, if you want peace, then you don't care if Jewish women are being raped. If you are anti-war in this illogic, then you support sexual violence and rape of Jewish women. And horribly, awfully, unbelievably, that's where we find ourselves today. In a few minutes, we will try to figure this whole mess out when we speak with Heidi Matthews and Tanya Cerizier, who co-wrote the Counterpunch article, Bombing Gaza Isn't Fighting Sexual Violence. Heidi is an associate, uh, sorry, assistant professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University in Toronto. She is currently leading an interdisciplinary research project studying colonial genocide. You can follow Heidi on X at Heidi underscore Matthews. Tanya is a reader in feminist theory at the School of Social Sciences, Birkbeck College, University of London. She is the author of Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape, and Narrative Politics. You can follow Tanya on X at Tanya Cerizier. That's S-E-R-I-S-I-E-R. -E and thanks to listener David S. for suggesting we have Heidi and Tanya on the show. And I think I know why David S. suggested, not only because of the quality of this piece, but I think there might be another reason as well. Producing is Becca Reidenauer. Becca, how's your week going so far? It's going It's going pretty good. Thank you. How, how was the first day solo producing going so far oh oh yeah just 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 uh the sweat dripping down my back <laughs> it's zoom for me that i'm like how? oh i thought you were saying this, the sweat was zooming down your back well, you're talking about the actual zoom. 
zooming all around. <laughs> so my week, as has so often been the case since right around two years ago when I went through the health nightmare that nearly killed me, my week has yet again been inconsistent. That is, for the last couple of years, and mostly because of illness, I have not had a regular everyday work schedule where each day of the week I'm doing generally the same tasks at the same time each day. I think it's what people call a rut, but to be honest, I wouldn't mind a regular rut right about now, when we don't experience technical issues or external problems that keep us from doing a show or a last-minute illness by myself, which often happens, or our guest, or any kind of cancellation that forces us to not go on air and online. And the irregularity of a schedule can become a real problem when you're trying to not only Adhere to whatever your own schedule is, balance your own schedule, but balance other schedules with yours as well. So my week so far has been unlike last week or the week before it and will likely not be like next week, no matter how hard I try to conform to a regular workday schedule and week schedule, which is exhausting as we were discussing with Ajay Singh Chaudhary yesterday, earlier this week on the show. And I will be ranting about exhaustion on this week's Patreon podcast, which goes live later this week on Friday. Friday morning, patreon.com slash this is hell. Becca, more important than my schedule or lack there of being exhausting, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? What will it take to end the war in Gaza? Maybe that should be our question from hell for our guests as well. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or leave it at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join. Or you can tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio or post it in our Discord community. Or you can leave your answer at our Patreon page if you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Patreon patrons, in fact, get first crack at the question from hell as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which this week again goes live on Friday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here in Chicago. Coming up, supporters of the Gaza War want us to think that if we want peace, we must support rape. Becca will share your answers to this week's question from hell as posted at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. Becca, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff recalls the trauma of reliving the trauma of revisiting the trauma queen. <laughs> and Becca will also <laughs> share who this week's final guest will be. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And the abyss we are staring into today is what seems to be a bottomless pit of endless, infinite misery. And that is the ongoing war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. That misery is made worse by rumors, conjecture, propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies. These lies have such power they can lead to dehumanization and a loss of respect and any sense of sanctity for human life, while fueling even more brutal violence. Israel is now claiming that Hamas is a so-called rapist regime, so of course anyone and everyone universally should want to support a war that destroys such a cruel authoritarian state driven by sexual violence. Here to explain the many problems with Israel making such claims about Hamas as well as the instrumentalization of sexual violence to justify ongoing armed conflicts, our guests today are 
Heidi Matthews and Tanya Cerizier, who co-wrote the Counterpunch article, Bombing Gaza Isn't Fighting Sexual Violence. And if you could turn down the music, Becca, that would be fantastic. You can follow Heidi on X at Heidi underscore Matthews. And you can follow Tanya on X at Tanya Cerizier. Make sure you check out Tanya's book, Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape, and Narrative Politics. And again, thanks to listener David S. for suggesting we have Heidi and Tanya on the show. Uh, let's start with, well, welcome to the show, Heidi. Hi, thanks so much for having us and to my uh, publicist husband for recommending us. See, you shouldn't have outed him. Now people are going to think he has a conflict of interest. <laughs> also, thanks for uh, being on the show. Tanya, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having us. And um, I sympathize with you being ill because I'm here just after having had a terrible cough. So hopefully I'll get through this without too many coughs. Well, I hope so, because, uh, yeah, the cough that's been going around, no matter where you are in the world today, is just brutal. I've just been going through it as well. You start by writing. Let's start with you, Heidi. Uh, you and Tanya start by writing, as the human catastrophe in Gaza deepens, Israel and its allies are mobilizing evidence of sexual violence committed by members of Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups on October 7th to justify continued military action. So specifically, these are events that supposedly took uh, place on October 7th. So, Heidi, let me ask a general question to begin with. Wars have a long history of being sites of sexual violence. Is the sexual violence that always accompanies wars ever considered by the military, the government, the media, their supporters, and the public in any so-called run-up to war? How often is that a concern of the public, the government, or the media when we are preparing for war? Yeah, it's a great question. We do, interestingly, uh, find sexual violence in almost every single instance of, of armed conflict uh, uh, recently and also historically. It's really fascinating. Um, yeah, but what goes along with that historically and contemporaneously as well uh, is this creation of fear around the prospect of sexual violence that's about to happen. And so that's part of the argument that Israel's putting forth here, right? Is that if Gaza is not completely decimated, then further October 7th will happen. And what will that mean? It will mean that uh, Jewish Israeli women in particular will be subjected to further forms of sexual violence, um, as has been alleged by Hamas. And, you know, one example of that that has stuck with me for a long time is the way in which uh, Nazi propaganda, you know, whipped up fears around Asiatic hordes of, of uh, uh, Russian or USSR at the time, fighters who were coming to rape, you know, so-called ethnic um, German women. Sorry. Uh, so, Tanya, let me just follow up on that with you. Uh, so, are threats of or, you know concerns about sexual violence towards women. I mean, if you, you using the Nazi framing, using that in historical context, Tanya, is uh, this kind of these kinds of claims of sexual violence, are they rooted in or a dog whistle for racism? Yes, I think quite often they are. And and just to follow on this, this will bring me to the answer. But from the first question, and this is one of the points we make in the article, is that we pay attention more to sexual violence that happens in a very kind of spectacular way. So like October the 7th. But one of the things that we don't pay a lot of attention to is that in situations of ongoing occupation, 
siege like we see in Gaza, sexual violence is actually endemic there. It's part of people's day-to-day lives, particularly women. You know, if you talk to Palestinians, they talk about sexual violence at checkpoints. They talk about sexual violence in Israeli detention. And this happened before October the 7th. There are signs that perhaps it's happening more in terms of reprisals after. But I think this is, and this gets to the racism question, one of the things that I think has been so concerning from people that you spoke about before, like Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton, is that while they talk about being opposed to rape or sexual violence generally as something that everyone should do, should be, there's a real silence around the gender-based and sexual violence that Palestinian women and also girls, boys and men are facing. And I think, you know, and Heidi's written about this quite a lot, what we get is the kind of intersection of these ideas around rape with stereotypes of, you know, particularly in Israel, Arab men as being, you know, sexually perverse, as desiring um, white women. And I've worked on this previously in the beginning of the war on terror after September 11th in countries like Australia and France you saw big moral panics about the idea that Arab men in these societies, that Muslim men were committing gang rapes against white women. And they fall into these kind of ongoing tropes at let sexual violence and rape become a problem of this kind of racialized other rather than something you know that does happen in Israel, that does happen you know to Arab and Palestinian women, that does happen in societies like Australia and France. And so when it becomes, you know, basically using this racist way like that, the attention isn't really on sexual violence. Sexual violence is used to do other things like mobilize, you know, justification for war, justification for occupation and justification for, you know, what is a very racist regime against the Palestinians. Heidi, when I was reading uh, your article, your uh, Tanya's article, one of the things that kept popping in my head was, I guess I was going back to about 2003, maybe it was even earlier, 2001 or 2002, when First Lady Laura Bush defended the war in Afghanistan by claiming it was to protect Afghan women's rights. And then we had a whole bunch of Afghan women who came on our show who said that that is that's a complete distraction and that is complete obfuscation of what the real reasons are for this war. And they didn't uh, like the use of women's rights in this manner. How, Heidi, how often do wars get framed as necessary to protect women when on the ground they make women far more vulnerable to violence, including sexual violence? How often are wars framed as necessary to protect women? Yeah, no, it's a great point. Uh, it happens, you know, clearly quite frequently. Um Turning towards this idea that, um, you know, it's the prerogative of Western powers to use armed force, you know, along with a whole set of other kinds of of interventions. But here we're talking about armed force in order to uh, uh, save, as it were, um, non-white, non-Western women from you know the the bad societies, the uh, religious societies, the um, societies that don't respect sort of internationally ex- uh, propounded 
uh, versions of human rights. It's something that's, uh, yeah, quite common. And, you know, as I think Tanya aptly put it just now, is a total distraction from from what's actually happening on the ground. And so on the one hand, it's a it's a version of a white saviorism um, that seeks to speak for women and girls on the ground and in other places where, you know, frankly, especially in the early 2000s, no, no one understood at all what was happening there. Uh, I, and again, just puts the focus um, sort of pruriently, I think, in many ways on the bodies of women um, as the thing that needs to be talked about um, and frankly looked at when we're having concrete policy discussions about war, right? About about going in and doing what's happening now in Gaza, which is actually dismembering those bodies, right? Making women, particularly mothers, um, more vulnerable, including uh, uh, children uh, and female children as well. And so um, it's a really, really uh, insidious sort of a feminist whitewash uh, uh, of Western desire to uh, to expand power globally um, in Israel, and and the, frankly, the genocide that's that's happening right now is just another example of that. So, Tanya, let me just ask you a really basic question that obviously you and Heidi have all, already both touched on, but this is the basic question that should be asked, I guess. Uh, continuing a violent, deadly armed invasion to stop violent, potentially deadly sexual violence. Is there, Tanya, is there any evidence whatsoever to suggest that military actions have and can end sexual violence in war zones? Well, I mean, I think in this case particularly, no, there, there isn't. I mean, what you see, and, and it's important to note that the United Nations, who um, we might talk about later, Israel and um, Israeli advocates have critiqued quite extensively, have made this the focus of their interventions from the beginning. You know, that they've said in the aftermath of October 7th that the Israeli military actions in Gaza are making Palestinian women and girls more vulnerable to sexual violence. And they already live with a heightened vulnerability to sexual and gender based violence. And, you know, this is because. You know, to be kind of twee about it, violence begets violence. You don't create safe conditions in a militarized zone. You don't create safe conditions by depriving people of the basic necessities of life. You don't create safe decision, safe conditions by essentially dehumanizing an entire population. And I think that's the other point to be made here. You know, if we're talking about this war, as a response to the actions of Hamas and particularly as a response to sexual violence, this is a war that is being carried out on the entire population of Gaza, you know, and beyond that too, the entire population of Palestinians also living in the West Bank and in the borders of Israel. Um, so no, I mean, it doesn't prevent violence. In fact, it leads to further violence. And I think we can see that as well when we think about sexual violence more broadly and we think about the photos and the videos that have been coming out of the conflict of Palestinian men who have subsequently been admitted to be civilians often by the Israeli Defense Forces, you know, being stripped semi-naked or naked, being lined up, being photographed, 
being taken to detention centers, reporting, experiencing um, essentially sexual violence that um, in those conditions. So we know that the military actions are actually far from preventing sexual violence, they're creating more sexual violence. And they don't make anyone safer. So, Heidi, you and Tanya write that uh, when the UN Security Council failed to pass a resolution demanding a ceasefire on December 8th of last year, 2023, Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy tweeted, thank you to the United States of America for vetoing a UN Security Council resolution designed to keep Hamas's rapist regime in power. So, rapist regime. Has Israel produced any evidence to the UN or anyone showing that Hamas imposes a system of planned and organized rape? Because that's what a a rapist regime would be, an authoritarian leadership that imposes a planned system of, of rape on its people. So, has there been any evidence brought to the UN whatsoever that would even slightly suggest Hamas is a rapist regime? No, is the short answer. Um, I, I think the, the question of evidence is is quite fraught, and oftentimes this critical conversation that's increasingly emerging um, that Tanya and I are part of around uh, uh, these sexual violence allegations oftentimes can devolve into into a question of, um, you know, parsing out this or that evidentiary claim against, uh, you know, an, that or another evidentiary claim in it. Um, and it can get a little a little convoluted and, and kind of lost in the weeds. Um, and I think part of part of what we do in the piece is to really focus on the narrativized way that these claims that the allegations that have been made um, are used, as we've already said, to support, uh, uh, to garner support for the continued war effort and the continued genocide. That being said, you know, a, a major uh, part of the campaign that we've identified um, are these sort of regularly uh, 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 planned, uh, fairly large scale pieces in mainstream media publications from the New York Times to another uh, piece uh I believe last week in the Guardian that do make the claim um, outright that following, you know, their journalistic investigation for what that's worth, uh, the facts on the ground, as I've ascertained them, um, do give rise to the inference that uh, Hamas is engaged in planned a planned or organized system uh, of rape, as you said. And, you know, to, to our estimation, we've looked very closely at all the evidence available as well as the sources of those evidence. Um, there's, it's just simply not, not enough right now to make that kind, uh, that kind of an inference at all. I think it's part of the, the sort of allegation bombing, or if there's a a different way of, of describing that, of just sort of constantly, um, on rate on a regular basis, inundating Western readerships with essentially the same claims being repeated over and over. So if you compare, for example, the New York Times piece to the recent Guardian piece, we're really seeing basically the same claims um, from the same sources um, being repeated. Uh, and those, again, are the same claims that Israel itself brought to the United Nations at a special event uh, that the Israeli mission to the UN held in early December, um, featuring Sheryl Sandberg and others, right? So we're hearing really not much new, 
um, and certainly not enough to be able to uh, to be able to show the planned or organized or, or systematic nature uh, uh, of those rapes. And and I would say, without you know getting too deep into the evidentiary question itself, from a legal perspective, um, you know it's not enough to make an allegation. Part of what the logic of uh, the Me Too phenomenon um, suggested uh, to the general public was that, you know, when we hear um, any kind of evidence about rape or sexual violence, that evidence is to be sort of uh, taken seriously from the beginning. Um, and that's really what Believe Women as a, as a hashtag is, is, meant to, is meant to say. And, you know, that's all well and good. But when we're looking at determining whether conduct constitutes a certain threshold. And so here, for example, um, the threshold of crimes against humanity, you need to be able to establish the widespread or systematic nature of the crimes um, uh, in question. And so uh, that asks us to do something uh, quite different, which which takes time, frankly, um, and investigation. What Tanya and I point out in the piece is that uh, what we need is not uh, you know, a dismissal uh, outright. It's not for us. We're not in a position to dismiss these allegations. What we're in a position to do is to call for impartial in- international investigations that follow well-established human rights standards um, and that have been conducted in uh, both conflict and post-conflict zones really now by United Nations bodies over the last 30 years um, uh, in this particular uh, war on Gaza. There are two bodies that um, have jurisdiction over crimes uh, uh, committed on before and after October 7th, namely the International Criminal Court and the Independent um, Commission of Inquiry that's been set up by the UN. Uh, and Israel just refuses flatly to cooperate with either. And and therein is really the problem. You know, the interest, of course, always should be to be to get at the truth um, uh, to fully understand the nature of the claims being made, to fully understand if they were, for example, organized in the way that you've suggested, and without uh, uh, international impartial investigations, that's just simply an impossible task. So, Tanya, uh, uh, Heidi was just mentioning the Me Too movement. Uh, you two write in your article at Counterpunch, in the wake of the South African case at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide, Israel government spokesman, uh, spokesperson Elon Levy accused South Africa of complicity with a rapist regime in Hamas. Does such a cl- claim, Tanya, does such a claim by Israel of Hamas as a rapist regime, does that win in the court of public opinion, if not the uh, court of uh, justice, the um, sorry, the International Court of Justice, does it work in pressuring South Africa to drop charges? Does it work in bringing about more support for Israel in the war? Considering the Me Too movement, do these claims of rapist regime win any more or less in the court of public opinion? Well, I think that we have to look at how things have developed over time because these allegations became a big part of you know what we might call Israel's strategy in the court of public opinions in November of last year and that was when Sheryl Sandberg got involved that was when the event that Heidi was talking about took place and 
Israel actually put out a number of um, videos on their um, official Twitter account, probably the most notable of which was a, a fictional video that showed, you know, had actors. It was very kind of high production value and it showed a young woman running into an office building that was set up with the logo Global Police Force and had a logo that looked very like the UN. It was staffed entirely by women who were wearing shirts that said things like, believe women, you know, believe survivors. And she comes in and starts telling the story that she's been raped. And she's very obviously talking about the music festival on October 7th. And eventually one of the women behind the desk says to her, wait a minute, are you Israeli and was the man who raped you Palestinian? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And she says, yes. And then they say, we can't help you. You know, it's not personal, but, you know, upstairs management have said that any sexual violence committed against an Israeli woman by a Palestinian man is legitimate resistance. And I think, you know, at that time, that was clearly part of a very, um, a big push to not only delegitimize, you know, the Palestinian struggle, to not only justify Israel's war, but also to delegitimize the UN and to kind of use the court of public opinion to, um, I suppose, counter or neutralize, you know, the statements that were starting to come out of the UN about, you know, the widespread destruction of life and destruction of Gaza itself. And I think that, I think they probably were quite effective for a while. And it's interesting, Heidi mentioned, you know, that these articles come out every so often. The New York Times piece, which was the next really kind of big piece, came out just after Christmas and just after there'd been massive offenses, um, offensives in Gaza at Christmas. And, um, you probably saw as well you know, a very, very um, powerful and widely shared speech by a priest from Bethlehem. And I think that a lot of people were shocked by what happened over Christmas. And then we saw again attention on these allegations and also the accusation that the world, feminists, the UN weren't taking them seriously. And I think again, you know, we've probably seen them starting to be talked about more after the presentation of the South African case. But I do wonder, and I think, I think it's hard to say, um, definitively at the moment, but I do wonder if they are being as successful now as they were initially, because I think that it's hard to keep presenting the same evidence after months and months of bombing you know after now we know that it's over 25,000 people killed and so so it's a, it's kind of a long answer I think they were very effective when they were first raised I think that there probably are more questions now by more people about you know how long these allegations can be used to justify ongoing violence you know how long we can continue to say that, yes, this is okay, as the country stands accused of genocide. And as I think South Africa put, what many people saw as a very, you know, whether they agree or not, but a very compelling case. So in terms of the court of public opinion, 
I think it's a very powerful tool, but I don't know if it can work forever against the absolutely devastating violence that we've seen over the last few months in the way that it just keeps on going. So, Heidi, you and Tanya write that the me, hashtag me too, unless you're a Jew campaign claims that UN women, that's the United Nations uh, entity for gender equality and the empowerment of women, also known as UN women, that the me too, unless you are a Jew campaign claims that UN women is actively and knowingly working to create a false and insidious narrative and ignoring the voices of of Israeli and Jewish women due to anti-Semitic bias. So Heidi, is that the goal to mar the UN with allegations of anti-Semitism in order to preemptively undermine any statement or judgment by the UN that condemns Israel, Israel's actions in the Gaza war or calls for a ceasefire, even peace talks of any kind? Is the goal of claiming Hamas is a rapist regime an attempt to smear the UN? or anyone's support for ceasefire or peace by claiming it's, it's anti-Semitic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this sort of Me Too meets war campaign uh, that we're seeing right now with respect to these uh, uh, Hamas allegations has been designed, I think, to do a, a few things. Um, we've, <laughs> uh, we've, we've covered a few of them, right? So obviously to create support uh, for the ongoing genocide and, and the war effort, um, to create the impression, the racist impression uh, in the minds of folks in the West that uh, Palestinians are sort of, um, you know, uh, inherently sexually rapacious uh, uh, predators um, who will carry out uh, uh, these kinds of attacks sexually in particular in the future, but uh, also to... Um, distract from the need internally and feminists inside of Israel have really pressed on the need for material supports for the survivors of October 7th and their families um, and criticize the state for just simply being, uh, you know, not at home at all and providing any of the sorts of supports required to, um, you know, to, to do the kind of real feminist work uh, 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 needed to, to help folks sort of recover and, and deal with what's happened to them. And then, um, you know, to displace blame for the October 7th attacks away from, you know, any alleged uh, Israeli failure in taking um, intelligence seriously, including intelligence provided by women themselves, right? Uh, uh, and then therefore, you know, some, some have said sort of allowed or at least um, didn't take seriously information that could have prevented the October 7th attacks. And then finally, I think, uh, as you've just described, just to continue a very long-standing um, uh, Israeli uh, move, uh, which is to delegitimize the UN. So one of you know the number one sort of Hasbara talking points is that the United Nations and its constituent organs and bodies, um, including but not limited certainly to UN women, um, have acted for you know generations uh, with some kind of anti. Uh, anti-Israel bias, and that bias is rooted um, in a in a uh, uh, an anti-Semitism that somehow um, you know just cannot be er eradicated in the world, right? That's the sort of general claim, um, which you know I I think goes far beyond the actual allegations um, of sexual violence here, but seeks to really attack anything the UN would do 
uh, to further sort of the struggle um, of Palestinians um, for, you know, things like human rights, things like the the right not to be subjected to genocide, but um, at a far, far more basic level, um, the right to have some kind of meaningful self-determination ensured through these uh, international institutional mechanisms uh, at the UN. And, you know, the real history of the treatment of Palestine at the United Nations has been the continual deferral of any kind of substantive adjudication of um, self-determination claims. Uh, you know, recently, I believe in 2011, Palestine's you know application to become finally a full member state at the UN was rejected. You know, there are many, many examples um, of this over the last 75 years. Um, and of course, for Israel, the script is just to flip that entirely to say that the UN is obsessed with Israel, treats it unfairly, et cetera, um, to just uh, 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 pull the rug out from under the fact that in reality, while Palestine, the question of Palestine is the longest running issue on the UN agenda, it has never been given the uh, attention or resources or political will to resolve it in any kind of meaningful way. And at base there, as Tanya just said, is really a delegitimation of the Palestinian struggle as such, right? It's this idea that the Palestinians don't have the right to struggle via, uh, you know, armed means or other means to fight for their own self-determination. They're not even a people who has that right, according to Israel. So, Tanya, what happens to the issue of sexual violence? What happens to the issue of women's rights, of the issue of trying to reduce sexual violence and rape in the world when it becomes a, I would say cynical, but a excuse, a rationalization for war without reducing sexual violence or to provide justice and accountability to victims of that violence? What happens to the issue of sexual violence and to the issue of women's rights when they're used as an excuse for war? Well, I think, you know, as Heidi said before, what we see is the weaponization, not only of sexual violence, but of women's bodies themselves. So what happens to women's rights is women are just reduced to kind of tools of war. And um, there's an Indian feminist, um, Sunda Red. Rajaswari um, Sunda, who writes about the fact that what we often see in conflict is this kind of setting up the figure of the violated woman as the symbol of the nation. But what happens when you do that, she says, is the woman herself disappears. She becomes just a function in an economy of nationalism and warfare. And so we actually maintain this idea that Women are essentially, you know, to be used, that they're the property of the community. It doesn't in any way work to increase women's autonomy. And I think, you know, and you use the word cynicism or cynical, and I think this, this is the problem. When we equate taking sexual violence seriously with these kind of very racist, imperialist logics, we actually make it far harder to talk about the realities of sexual violence 
we make it far harder to confront sexual violence in and of itself. And we also make it far harder, you know, to build a world where it's not simply the case that when there is conflict, sexual violence occurs because it maintains this kind of logic of treating women as property, of caring about sexual violence essentially, you know, when it fits into a different kind of narrative and, you know, treating it as propaganda rather than an issue that can be or should be resolved. And I think the final element of that, which we do try and talk about in the piece, is that we don't really help to reduce sexual violence when we treat it as completely separate from other kinds of violence, especially in conflict, because it's connected, you know, it's interlinked. When you have a society where, you know, the Palestinian people, as Heidi was just talking about, are dispossessed, where they're dehumanized, that facilitates violence against them, including and particularly sexual violence. And we see it in other institutions like slavery in the US. You know, when people were enslaved, treated as less than human, we know that that promoted widespread sexual violence against them. And so, really, you know, if we want to adequately fight sexual violence, we need to think about it in connection with these other issues, not just treat it as something that sits out on its own. You know, and also we have to oppose it being used as a justification for other types or further types of violence because you know that doesn't help anyone, particularly women and particularly women in conflict zones. And that's the sexual uh, exceptionalism that you and Heidi write about in your piece at Counterpunch. Again, we've been speaking with Heidi Matthews and Tanya Cerizier, who co-wrote the Counterpunch article, Bombing Gaza Isn't Fighting Sexual Violence. Tanya is the author of Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape, and Narrative Politics. You can follow Tanya on X at Tanya Cerizier. That's S-E-R-I-S-I-E-R. Thanks to listener David S. for suggesting we have Heidi and Tanya on the show. I have one last question for each of you, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So let's start with you, Heidi. You write, the latest step in this campaign came in July of 2023, following a high-profile case in which a Jewish-Israeli woman was raped by a Palestinian man. In response, the Knesset passed a new law creating a special category of sexual violence, sexual assault, and sexual harassment committed with nationalistic motivations. These crimes are now considered sexual terrorism, prosecutable under the 2016 terrorism law, making the maximum sentence life imprisonment. These racially targeted laws were introduced despite vocal opposition from the survivor herself and from feminist groups who declared that the parliament was in effect stating that Israeli survivors of rape by Jewish Israeli men were less deserving of justice and sympathy. As Dana Frank has argued in Heretz, the current mobilization of sexual violence allegations in Israel co-ops feminist language to advance the Israeli state's militarist and racist agendas. So, Heidi, co-opting feminism to advance a state's militarist and racist agenda, is this happening elsewhere? Is Israel unique? Is Israel some kind of new kind of laboratory for instrumentalized 
feminism, even a new kind of liberalism that is both authoritarian and racist? Is, is this unique to Israel or is there the possibility that this could spread elsewhere? That's a great question, actually. I like it. It's not from hell. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't. The general proposition uh, is not unique. I don't think so. We've often heard other states talking about constructing for themselves um, a quote feminist foreign policy, right? And so uh, the famous uh, Justin Trudeau of my my own home state of Canada. Uh, has talked about this quite a bit, but we also see it um, in more, let's say, authoritarian regimes as well, including, uh, for example, in Venezuela. And so what a feminist foreign policy means, oftentimes, uh, is a turn to carceral feminism, uh, is a turn to the idea that we need to unleash extremely severe um, uh, uh, punishments, uh, including, you know, of course, deprivation of liberty, but all sorts of other kinds of punitive measures, um, in order to advance the rights of women themselves. Um, in my own state of Canada, we see that happening against the backdrop of a, uh, a recent national inquiry into murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, uh, whose final report in 2019 found that Canada is responsible for both a historic and an ongoing race-based genocide against Indigenous peoples in Canada. Okay, and so when when we often think that you know genocide ha happens elsewhere or is rare, and those are the sorts of ideas that um, Israel itself right now is 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 putting forth at the ICJ, et cetera, you know, it would be impossible to think of the Jewish the Jewish state as being responsible for genocide. You know, I think for many folks, they would have thought the same thing about Canada. How could Canada, who is sort of a bastion and leader of human rights, uh, peacekeeping the responsibility to protect all of these things on the international plane, how is it that Canada is doing a genocide at home against against uh, you know, the indigenous population there uh, and a genocide that has on been unrolled uh, with particular emphasis on the dispossession um, and destruction of uh, indigenous women and girls themselves. Right. So the idea that a feminist foreign policy uh, 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 <laughs> is some kind of good thing should always be looked at with a high degree of skepticism. Um, and we just have to look at Canada to see the way in which that kind of feminist language can be used to whitewash uh, genocides taking place at home. So our question from hell for you, Tanya, is you and Heidi write that as Israel stands formally accused of genocide at the International Court of Justice, we cannot allow select and spectacular allegations of wartime rape to be the only thing we all agree on. Any feminism worth its name must refuse to accept the bombing of civilians, forcible transfer and denial of food, water, and medicine to be justified as avenging sexual violence. So you and Heidi mentioned in your writing, you mentioned Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton forwarding these ideas that there is only one thing that we can agree upon, and that is that we should uh, oppose any rapist regime that might e exist in Hamas. Is this what feminism looks like to the elite, to the 1%, to the most powerful liberals? How does this feminism supporting war differ 
from the feminism the rest of us may think of when we hear the word feminism. Because when I think of feminism, I certainly don't think support for war. So is this what feminism looks like to the 1%? Again, it's a really good question. I don't know if it's from hell. I mean, I think, I think that the short answer is yes, you know, to the kind of neoliberal elite in big business and in government. This is what feminism looks like. And, you know, and I think the broader answer is that feminism has become a very kind of unruly beast, I guess, very highly contested. And, you know, in the international sphere as well, there is a version of Heidi mentioned carceral feminism before, you know, that's the form of feminism that in domestic spaces thinks that the solution to things like gender-based violence is more prisons. You know, you translate that to the international space and it becomes, you know, the answer to gender-based violence is essentially more war and more militarism. I don't think that that is the majority of feminism, and particularly when we think beyond the US, we think beyond the UK, you know, we think beyond Canada and also Australia, where I'm from. When we think about global currents of feminism, then, you know, what we might call, you know, the feminism of the 99% rather than the 1%, it looks very different. And I think amongst feminists, feminists across the world, you see, you know, a real rejection of that specifically here, the idea that there's anything feminist in the absolute devastation and destruction of Gaza. And that's why partly I think it was important to us to write the article because that's a vision of feminism that's worth fighting for, you know, a vision of feminism that says, you know, we actually refuse to agree only on wartime sexual violence and, you know, by default to say that we have nothing to say about genocide, to say that we have nothing to say about detention and torture, to say that we have nothing to say about decades of siege and occupation, you know, because that's not a feminism that speaks to the political needs of, you know, the world. I cannot thank you enough, Heidi and Tanya, for being on our show. And even though we just had a conversation for nearly 40 minutes, there is a lot more to this article. Go to Counterpunch and find Heidi Matthews and Tanya Cerizier's article, Bombing Gaza Isn't Fighting Sexual Violence. Check out Tanya's book, Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape, and Narrative Politics. Follow Heidi on Twitter at Heidi underscore Matthews. Follow Tanya on Twitter at Tanya Cerizier. Thank you so much for both being on the show. Thanks to David S. for suggesting we have Heidi and Tanya on the show. And uh, Heidi, if you could thank David S. personally for us, that would be great. I'll do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. And uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Thank Thanks you so much, Chuck. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. So using Israel's logic, if you don't like this is hell, you don't like God. If you learned from our talk with Heidi and Tanya about the way sexual violence is manipulated during wartime to cynically justify the continuation of war and cause even more sexual violence, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your uh, support for completely listener supported this is hell by just visiting this is hell and clicking on, you guessed it, support. 
Rebecca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us how our listeners are responding on the Welcome to the Hell Hole This is Hell Facebook group page, which currently has about 800 members. All right. Well, we this week's question from hell is what will it take to end the war in Gaza? This light light stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and we have a couple of answers here. Yeah, should we go right ahead? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, so from Pete V, we have, (laughs) the only possible way to end this conflict is if the people of Israel's revolt against their government. Outside of that, Doctor Who. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Doctor Who, I think, would have been the best answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are a little bit long. This next is a little bit longer than, uh, so from Martin F., this is, it'll require Israeli Jews to undo a lifetime of religious education that taught them to see themselves as perpetual victims. Otherwise, any future Palestinian acts of resistance will be dismissed as terrorism or an act of God, one or the other. Pretty good, Martin F. Yeah, that's well thought out. And then... uh, from Walchev, I'm sorry about my pronunciation of your name. That's okay. Uh, you can get back. You can DM me. Um, <laughs> it, the answer is our son becoming a red giant. Um, <laughs> That's pithy. That is pithy. <laughs> <laughs> Any more on uh, Welcome to Hellhole? That's what we got today. Okay. So uh, as always, you can leave your answer to the question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell. Uh, you can uh, this is Hell Radio. Sorry, you can leave it at our Facebook group page. Welcome to Hell Hole. You can put it in our Discord community or on X at This Is Hell Radio. Or if you are a subscriber, and we hope you are, you can give your answer to this week's question from Hell on our Facebook page, uh, Patreon. I'm sorry, Patreon, Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. We will tell you who our final guest of the week will be, as well as what Seb, Dr. Seb Vupper is doing on this week's The Past Inside the Present, when Seb, a historian by trade, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was really, really high this is Hell and Becca. I know you have Hefe on the line. I sure do. Sweet. All right, let's get going. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You're hitting a thousand so far. <laughs> One, two, you know what to do. Oh, no, not never again, again. I got bug-eyed and ugly mad the other day when an unwise person resurrected the calumny that it was due to leftist behavior that Hillary lost the 2016 election. To top it off, the dumbass began her mistake with the phrase, Now seems like a good time to remind... Really? Now? Now? Remind us that two elections ago, an overprivileged woman who felt entitled to the presidency committed the hubris of not listening to her campaign advisors on the ground in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and thus lost those states and thereby the election, after which she sank into a period of self-pity, very understandable for a mortal human being whose life's ambition had been dangled in front of her and then snatched away by an oaf. 
then wrote a book that was basically a hissy fit, then went on a publicity tour slandering Bernie Sanders, who worked stumping for her far more than she did for Obama. Now is the good time to remind, eight years later, now, when we, the anti-fascist side, have never been more on the ropes and Biden is as popular as an unhoused broken St. Bernard. You want to pull this crap again now? Why not blame the white people who voted for Trump? Is that too scary for you, you pathetic washcloth? Why doesn't Hillary primary Biden if she's such a powerhouse? Come on, Hillary, run. You can beat Biden, and it's your civic duty since his numbers stink like dumpster runoff. Could be a chance to demonstrate a little more common sense and temper your arrogance. Maybe even relinquish entirely your elitist posture and come down to earth to actually fight for the poor and the workers. You might even win over some of the deplorables, as you so diplomatically called them, if only on the promise to nationally protect abortion. But no, of course you won't, because it's easier to go down in history as a woman robbed by misogyny of her rightful triumph than as an also-ran-again neoliberal technocrat. You've written your story. Wouldn't want to change it now, would you? Since Hillary tacitly threatens to be absent from the field for yet another election, what could possibly convince a young white woman leaning toward that brand of libertarian hyper-rationalism, the hallmark of which is sickening smugness, that now was a good time to exhume this petty, bitter, lazy, and demonstrably wrong take on Hillary's ignoble foundering in 2016? I posit that it's the same psychological issue causing me to rage against its reemergence. Trauma. A widespread everyday trauma spread among many people all over the world, akin to the trauma of being born into hell. The election cycle leading to the victory of Trump was traumatic for us all, though not just for the reasons Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle found so hilarious on SNL. It was traumatic for those of us who saw in Bernie Sanders the hope that economic justice issues might have a fighting chance to be prioritized at the highest executive level of U.S. government, only to discover our cohorts on the center left didn't understand economic justice to be such a priority. To them, as to Hillary, it was a pony. The Trump victory was most exceedingly and understandably traumatic for women in general, but especially for identitarian feminists for whom women's equality was the talisman for equality for all. Despite the Clintonian betrayal of the working class, standing their chosen electoral avatar like a full-body birthmark. To digress, as I usually do at this point in the moment of truth, it's a similar trauma of betrayal I heard many Jews speak of in the days following the October 7th Hamas attack. For those who support Israel's ongoing genocidal behavior, the trauma was also a callback trauma, a callback to the trauma of the Holocaust, about which a few words. I heard secondhand that Naomi Klein saw her Jewish childhood indoctrination into knowledge of the Holocaust, marked by the phrase, never again, not as a call to remember in order to prevent humanity from ever repeating such a genocide upon any people, but the re-traumatizing of a new generation of Jews into Jewish-centered fear and self-pity. Re-trauma becomes a self-replicating psychological behavior. In the case of Jewish supporters of Israel's actions against their Palestinian minority, it would seem to have become a permanent operating mode. Re-trauma reproduces itself at a more personal level when someone of minority population status perceives, consciously or otherwise, a microaggression. 
as such it can serve a protective or even a motivational function. Now, however, it is the norm. All re-trauma, everywhere, all the time. Some of it, reiterations merely of simulacra of trauma. White people act out of re-trauma when thinking they're accused of white fragility, which is ironically circular of them. It's become the continual response among even those followers of Donald Trump who are not of white complexion or ethnicity. Whatever initiated the invention or frothing up from nothing of that trauma has inspired deservedly myriad theoretical volumes in its own right. Perhaps then, in a certain sense, the ass-hoagie who chose the beginning of a year when we must all replay the traumas associated with a replicant Mussolini dancing in the media spotlight might actually have picked the most opportune moment to reenact her victimization by imaginary leftists. It's masochistic, a way to cause herself and others the most damage. It's like an obese man with a heart condition eating a dozen cheeseburgers and then trying to shock himself into cardiac arrest. Except here, the obese man trying to provoke an infarction in his own heart is also in a position to fall onto a crowd of others and crush them. Perhaps we don't have enough actual horror in our daily lives. Maybe there are those of us so privileged that we must re-traumatize ourselves to feel vital. Rock and Chappelle don't, because they were slapped and stabbed, respectively, in real life, which might be a nice reminder to give a wealthy entertainer now and then. But the rest of us, doom-scrolling, watching infuriating documentaries, hate-watching news programs, and the anti-wokeness rants of stand-up comics, we need now the exhilaration a white man used to be able to easily get from slapping on aftershave. Not that we're all always imagining or exaggerating the seriousness of events. Some of us are justifiably traumatized. It's one's response that betrays the unjustifiable inflation or whole-cloth fabrication of the premise. If you're reviving feelings of resentment based on your wrong conclusions to remind yourself how angry you got the first time you came to a wrong conclusion, you're doing the work of humaning poorly. If you try to overthrow an election because your great orange Fuhrer didn't win, or because you believe the Jews are trying to replace the whites with other colors, that is recognizably destructive. You are definitely overreacting to an invented injury in a Nazi-ish manner. If you're committing genocide because you're convinced a past genocide directed at you is the only truly important one, you're humaning disastrously. The quality distinguishing right-wing authoritarian destructive motives from progressive, compassionate, decent motives is the capacity for self-reflection during consideration of such. Hillary, MAGA, and the Israeli state all events a regrettable deficit of it. I'll be honest. I had hoped for Hillary to be the first woman president, too, despite her Kissinger fetish and neoliberal myopia concerning social remedies for problems more wisely attributed to thievery from the public for the benefit of the private sector, especially since Reagan, and definitely accelerated by the self-serving policy agenda enacted by the male Clinton in the 90s. It all boils down to priorities. As hopeless as it appears in this dark prelude to even darker times ahead, the determination to be better humans must take precedence over the impulse to revenge. That's asking a lot, and on reflection, I am probably not the best source of such advice. But I'm working on improving as I grow older, and one day I'll be dead, which, in human terms, will render me the perfect model of behavior. This has been the moment of truth. Mm. Good day.
Jeffy. What? Stay beautiful. I will. Oh, I, I got to just tell you one thing really quick. All right. I disagree with Martin about a religious education uh, that reinforces uh, the persecution complex of Jews, obviously. Secular education, it, it's a historical education. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Yeah. So he right can't here. win. All right. He well, can't win. All right. Don't worry. If he wins, I will protest. And you're an anti-Semite. <laughs> stay, all right. Stay beautiful, Jeffy. Love you. Bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac and Fox peoples, this is hell. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? We will share the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show and name a winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. Becca, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb clears up some hellish misconceptions, looking at the interplay between the Nazis and the Zionist movement in, the, in Germany during the 1930s. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> Becca, who do we have scheduled to be on as our final guests of the week? Our final guest of the week will be Jack Norton and Lydia uh, Pilo Hobbs, or Pilot Hobbs, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, Go Straight to Jail, The New Geography of Mass Incarceration. It's a piece that was also written by Judah Shept. This, uh, this article is an excerpt from The Jail is Everywhere, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration. Which is a new collection of amazing essays. We hope to see you throughout January for This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, no matter the weather. Office hours are held every Wednesday evening beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. The show you are currently listening to streams live on Wednesday this week, which means this evening is office hours. So if you're listening to the live stream or the podcast today, the current weather forecast is that the warm up from nearly nine and a half straight days of sub-zero temperatures here in Chicago, we actually had 227 straight hours of temperatures below zero. But tonight during office hours, it's supposed to be a balmy high 30s, maybe even 40 degrees. So look for me out back in the beer garden around the fire pit. That's This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening, beginning at around 6 p.m. inside the warm and friendly confines of Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, which has hands down the best free pool table on the north side, as well as the most comfortable bar stools you'll find anywhere, plus the fire pit and Mel, the bar cat. Thanks to Becca Ridenauer for producing today's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz, live from the waking nightmare that profits from misery. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>